Well, good evening, everyone. It is such a joy to be with you at this 815 service. As I said, my name's Emily, and I'm one of the student pastors here. And I have to confess, I think this is one of my, my favorite services. Um, I love the 815, so I feel really grateful to be able to, to talk to you this evening. And we're launching a new series at the 815 at the moment called Questions, Questions, Questions. We're going to be going through a series considering questions that Jesus asked. Now, we all know questions matter. The ability to ask and answer questions is part of what makes us human. It empowers us to think and to, to learn and to understand the world around us. Even kids continually asking their parents in the car, are we nearly there yet, are we nearly there yet, is a way that they're being formed, they're, they're growing into who they're meant to be. And one of the key ways that Jesus taught his disciples was with questions. So over the term, we're going to journey through some of these questions that he asked. And this evening, we're going to look at a question that Jesus asked that's repeated actually in three of the four Gospels. And it's an incredibly important question. In fact, I want to say it's the most important question a person can ever answer, the most important question that's ever put to us. It's a question that on it hangs the destiny of our lives. It's the question Jesus asked in our passage for this evening, in verse 16, who do you say I am? So have that passage open, we're going to be digging into it this evening. Now, earlier in the week, I was uh, walking along Cowley Road to the nail salon, bear with me here, and I knew I'd be speaking about this question, the question that Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And I just had it going around in my head as I was walking to get my nails done. And um, anyway, I sit down, and if you've never been to a nail salon, um, you go in, and they offer you an opportunity to pick the colors. So you pick the colors, have a bit of small talk. I met this lovely lady. And when you work for a church, and the conversation comes up, what do you do for a living? Um, it either is a conversation opener, or it's a complete conversation shutdown. You never quite know how it's going to go. But anyway, sit down, start my nails, pick my colors. And, um, this lady, as soon as I said, well, I work for a church. Now, I've had many different responses to this question, and this has genuinely never happened. Um, she didn't say anything. She just paused. She looked up at me and said, so who do you believe Jesus is? I was like, sorry, what? Bearing in mind, literally just been thinking about this question. It felt like, you know, when your phone's been listening to you, and you're like, the algorithms, what's going on here? And I was like, sorry, what? Just repeat that again. And she said, yeah, who, who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe he's the son of God? I was like, okay, let's chat. And so it's like dream evangelistic moment. And to be honest, we ended up having a really good conversation. And she told me all about her horrific Tinder date. But anyway, the question, the conversation unfolded. And actually, it was beautiful. She, she just opened up a bit about, for her, she had grown up in a wing of the church um, where she'd known about Jesus. But through her church experience, she'd come to just see him as a teacher, one among many. And she'd now found herself exploring different routes towards, towards God. And actually, she found herself pretty disillusioned with church, with faith, quite hurt by it. And it struck me in that moment just how important this question is of who we believe Jesus to be. You see, the question asks, Jesus asks, who do you say I am, is the most important question we can ever answer because it's on the basis of this, our belief of who he is, that we can truly understand who we are and who he's called us to be. But only when we see and know who Jesus is, do we know who we really are. So I've got two simple points for us this evening. Quite simply, why did Jesus even ask this question in the first place? And why does our answer matter? 
So in Jesus asking this question to the disciples, it wasn't like he'd forgotten who he was. He hadn't forgotten his name. He didn't need the disciples to remind him who he was. If I asked Emily or Josh, you know, who do you say I am? It'd be a bit weird. I'd be like, well, you're Emily. Um, but actually, Jesus is asking this question to reveal something much deeper. If we look at the passage, he actually asks first, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the crowd say that I am? But Jesus wasn't just doing a popularity poll to see sort of what the crowds were thinking of him at the time. He knew exactly who he was. And you see, this whole scene is beautifully set up to convey something so deep about to teach them something really profound. You see, up until this point, the disciples had been journeying with Jesus. They'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen incredible teaching. They'd seen the feeding of the 5,000. They'd, they'd seen a lot, and they'd been sent out to do some of this stuff. But yet, after all of this, he turns to them and asks them this simple question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And actually, it was a very specific place. We read that he'd taken them to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, done a detour to a specific place. And this place was the hotspot for all religions. It was actually the pagan capital of Israel. It was named after Caesar, who believed himself to be a god. So Jesus takes his disciples to the pagan capital of Israel, to the highest mountain of Israel, and it's there he asks this question, with this backdrop around him. You see, in the time of Jesus, people had lots of different ideas about who he was. Some said he was a prophet. Some accused him even of being the devil. Some a heretic. But Jesus wasn't intimidated by these other names, by these other gods. In asking the question in the pagan capital of Israel, in the place of all other worship, who do you say I am? He's revealing the most wonderful, glorious truth that anyone can ever possibly come to know. Just think about it like this for a moment. Um, if you're in a new city, which many of you are, you've come to a new place, you're a new student, I imagine you've had to introduce yourself a lot <laughs> over the past few weeks. You've had to, to say again and again what you're studying or where you've come from. And perhaps if you've moved to a new city and you started a new job, you've had to introduce yourself to get to know people. And when you, you get chatting to someone, if, if you sort of hit it off, you might then exchange um, sort of Instagram uh, account or Facebook, you'd, you'd look them up, you'd find some way of connecting with them. But you can only truly get to know that person if you meet them personally, if they reveal themselves to you. You can't just get to know someone by looking at their Instagram story. You have to spend time with them. You have to let them reveal and open up who they are to you. You see, this is why this question matters so much, because Jesus, the Son of Man, came to reveal himself in order that we might fully know him, not just know about him, have an idea about him, sort of observe him from afar. He wants his disciples to truly encounter who he is. And this is the extraordinary claim of the New Testament, that God chose to reveal himself in a way that makes the most sense. And unlike any other religion, that God chose to reveal himself by taking on human flesh. He lived he ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he had human emotions, joy, sadness, anger, pain. He had a job as a carpenter. He suffered, he grieved, he even experienced death. The supreme God of the universe, who could have chosen to reveal himself to us in any other way, humbly took on flesh and came and lived among us, came to pour out his love upon us. No prophet or teacher or spiritual guru 
came to do anything remotely like this. This is our faith. This is what sets us apart from any other ideology or religion. And this question matters because Jesus came and made his home among us to bring us home to him. It matters because the answer changes everything. As Simon Ponsonby, one of the preachers here said, at the base of the highest mountain of Israel where this question took place, we have the highest revelation that the world has ever known. As we read on, as Peter, one of the disciples responds to this question in verse 16, he responds with the answer, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. His response to Jesus' question is, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the rescuer, he's the Lord, he's the son of God. He's the one true living king. He's the anointed one, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. The promised Messiah who didn't come in a way that people were expecting him to come. He came and suffered among us. He laid down his life. So secondly, the question matters, but the answer matters because it's on confession of faith in believing that Jesus is the Lord, the son of the living God. As the apostle writes, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Peter's answer was so significant that Jesus' response to him was to say, say that blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because God has revealed this incredible truth to you, that it's a work of God's spirit that's illuminated who Jesus is to him. As Simon, who gets renamed Peter, so it gets a bit confusing, he responds to Jesus' question with this confession of who Jesus really is, that Jesus turns to Peter and says who he really is. Peter has revealed the true identity of Jesus, and then Jesus, in response, reveals Peter's true identity. He calls Peter the rock. It's a play on words. His name actually means the rock, and it says that it's on this rock that I will build my church that this confession of faith, this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah is the, the foundation, the firm foundation for the church. And you know, it's often in times of transition where we don't feel necessarily like we're on a firm foundation when we're faced ourselves with the question of who I really am, who I am. And again, perhaps if you've moved to a new city recently, you've perhaps been at home studying for a while, you have a bit of a sense of what it is to be the foundations being shaken of asking yourself questions of who I really am. Perhaps you've come to Oxford, you were the top of your whole school and suddenly you're surrounded by people who are the top of their schools and you don't quite feel like you know where you fit anymore. Perhaps you're not quite sure where your friend group lies. Perhaps you've got a new job but it's not quite what you expected to be. Perhaps changes in family circumstances have brought a shaking foundation. Perhaps the success you'd really wanted, you finally get there and you get it, but it doesn't quite feel like you thought it would. And even over the past year, all of us have experienced some form of shaking of our foundations as we've had to change our ways of life in so many different ways. For me, it was actually coming to university in this city 10 years ago now where I definitely experienced that time of shaking, of questioning for the first time, who am I really? I'd grown up in a Christian home, but over my teenage years had very little interest in faith. And as a fresher here in this city, the church would be the last place I'd have ever imagined myself on a Sunday evening. But there was a time in between my first and second year where probably from the outside, I looked like I had it all together. I had great friends. I was doing all right in my, my course. 
But actually, deep down inside, I felt like no one really knew me, that there was this loneliness. And I remember I had an experience over the summer between my first and second year where I got to experience being around Christians for the first time in a long time, and I thought, my goodness, they have something. They have a joy, a peace that I, I just want to know again. But I was convinced that someone like me would not belong in a church. I thought I had to change all this stuff about me before I could come to God. And as I came back to Oxford after experiencing that time with some Christians, I started trying to find that joy and that peace in so many different places. And as I got further and further away from what I'd seen in those, that experience over that summer, I just cried out. And I think it was the first time I'd prayed in a really long time, there must be more to life than this. And I think it was my first sort of prayer. And the crazy thing is, is that in the three weeks that followed, I had this desire that I needed to go to church. And randomly, people just started inviting me. They didn't know what was going on in my heart. They didn't know this searching, this shaking, this trying to figure out who I was. And on the third time, I thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give it a go. What have I got to lose? And I remember coming into an 8.15 service in my second year of uni and just being hit by a sense of, oh my goodness, this feels like home. And in the worship, I encountered Jesus, the risen Savior. I knew that I'd come home. And it was in that place that my foundations found a firm place to put their hope in as I gave my life to Jesus. And as I looked to him, as I put my trust in him, I realized who I was made to be loved and chosen in Christ. You see, the church is built on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of the living God. We're not a social club with a steeple on the top. We're people who've been transformed by the living power of God, who have repented and believed that he is the son of the living God. We as Christians are to be the church built on these foundations. And perhaps in your journey, you might have been put off by the church at times. And I'm sorry for things that might have happened in the church that have put you off. But look again to Jesus. This is the foundation of what we're building on. Because if you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you know that you don't have to save yourself. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you know that you've been set free from the power of sin and death. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you don't have to prove yourself. You're fully known and fully loved and accepted by the Father. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you have an unshaking hope of eternity with him. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you've been adopted into his family. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you don't have to walk alone. You have a friend, one who will never leave you nor forsake you. If you know that Jesus is the Messiah, then you can find your true identity in him, that you have been made in the image of God that he made you with a purpose, that he chose you. And not only after Peter saw Jesus for who he really was, did Peter, did Jesus then tell Peter who he really was, he also empowered him to do what he'd been made to do. Finally, we see that from identity flows purpose. He says to Peter in verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, you will bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Earlier in the year, as we were all sort of finding perhaps new hobbies during the lockdown stages, I um, got into a new hobby, and um, I feel like maybe it was like a quarter-life crisis, I'm not sure, but anyway, decided to give skateboarding a go, very amateur, and partly because we found a skate park near where I live, and the first time we went to this skate park, the gate was locked, and it was really annoying, we're like, oh, this looks epic, but the gate's locked, and then we went back a few days later, and the gate was open, it was amazing, so we went and played in the skate park when no one was there trying to like we had an idea of what we were doing. 
And then we went back another time, and it was locked, but there were some kids in there. And we're like, how did you get in? And they showed us a little bit where you could climb over the back to get in the skate park. I thought, great, we know how to get into the skate park. Anyway, so my friend, and I mean my friend, I'm not just doing a story where you say your friend. My friend did just, she kept going back early morning, and she'd every morning climb over the fence to get into the skate park. And she got to know the guy who, who ran it, and he became quite a good friend of hers. And eventually he was like, do you want a key? And she's like, well, that would be really helpful. He's like, let me get you a key. When she texted me to say that she'd been given a key to the skate park, I was like, this is it, we've made it. She even got invited into a Facebook group for the key holders of the skate park. I thought, a lot has happened in a few months. We now are key holders of the skate park of Cowley. And the best thing is, it meant that we could go whenever we wanted, that we could go and unlock it for people. And even not that long ago, I was like, oh, it was locked. Texted her, she's got the key, we could go in. I felt like we belonged to something that we'd been given the authority and we had access to the skate park. Now, it's a very silly example, but you know when you've been given to the key something, to something that you belong there, that you have the authority to open the door. And Jesus is the ultimate keeper of the keys. In Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, he says, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive and forever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. It's Jesus who holds the keys. He opens the life and death. And he's given that ministry to bring the kingdom of heaven to us, the church. Those same keys that he commissioned Peter with are the keys that he offers his disciples, he offers each of us today to be part of bringing in his kingdom. And I believe that some of you today need to be reminded of your identity in Christ. Remember the keys that Jesus has given you, your extraordinary responsibility and privilege that Jesus has given you to open up the kingdom of God to people to see people set free through the proclamation of who Jesus is for the good news of the gospel, to have the joy of seeing people set free from brokenness, to have the joy of unlocking hope that is found in Jesus, to have the joy of opening the lives of, to open the kingdom to people, the lives we meet in our workplaces, in our university, in our schools, wherever we find ourselves, to be bringers of the kingdom. And you know what the thing I love most about the story of Peter is that Jesus sees him, he appoints him to be the rock, but he does this before Peter's actually gone on to do anything. And in fact, if you know the story of Peter, he goes on to mess up many times again and again. But the beautiful thing about being a follower of Jesus is that it doesn't any way, shape or form mean that you have it all together. In fact, often or not, the more that you know Jesus, the more you realize you really need him. But it's actually a beautiful thing to be broken to say yes to Jesus, because he's more concerned about who you are than, who you, than what you go on to do. He saw you before all of creation. He chose you to be in a loving relationship with him. And when you know and see who Jesus really is, that's when we're free to be who he's called us to be. So remember, the question matters because it's the question of who Jesus really is, and it's what he came to do. He came to reveal himself to us, to make a way for us to know God. And the answer matters because when we know who Jesus is, we know who we are. We know what we've been made for. And so finally, to land this evening, all I want to say is this same question that Jesus put to his followers 2,000 years ago is the same question that he's asking each and every one of us this evening. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Perhaps you're here tonight and this is all quite new to you. I just encourage you to maybe do an alpha course to think about that or to, to read a gospel for the first time, to consider who Jesus is, to get to know about him. There's 
not only evidence in the New Testament for who he is, but there's also external things you can look at, some great books out there. We'd love to help you in your journey of exploring who Jesus is. I have one here, it's called Who Moved the Stone? This is a, an old classic, but it's a great book. But perhaps you grew up like me in a Christian home and you've come to university and you're still feeling kind of far from Jesus. Or you thought you knew him, but now he feels different. His invitation to you tonight is to come to him. It's never too late to turn back to him. In fact, this is the copy of the book of Who Moved the Stone that my dad gave actually to my granddad just before he passed away. And in the cover, he wrote to my granddad, Dear Dad, look no further, Tim. And it was in reading this book and considering the evidence of who Jesus really is, of his life, death, and resurrection, that my granddad at the age of 72 came to put his trust in Jesus. Don't waste your life waiting to do that. His invitation to you this evening is to come to him. And if you've been rocked, if you thought you knew who Jesus was, but your circumstances have made you question that, my encouragement to you this evening is to remember the promises of God, to remember his faithfulness in your life. We'd love to pray for you, to, to come alongside you in that, but don't isolate yourself. Jesus wants to remind you this evening of his power as the Messiah in your life. Because your response to this question not only determines now, but it's our eternal destiny as we respond to Jesus and say who he really is. So what about you? Who do you say he is? wants to hear your confession tonight.